Imagine, if you will, one of the following scenarios. You're going for a job interview and your prospective employer wants to know from you in a few sentences what you think their organization is all about. What do you say to capture the mission statement at the heart of that company? Or you volunteer regularly for a charity and on local radio, you're asked what the aims of the charity are going to be over the next five years. Are you able to say what they are now, let alone what they might be in five years' time? You're talking with some friends from your neighborhood at a local community event. One of them knows you go to church and asks you what the point of Christianity really is all about. What would you say by way of giving an answer? Or you attend a multi-faith gathering in your locality and you're asked what the Methodist church stands for and how it's different from other Christian churches. Do you know? Are you able to tell them? Would we feel comfortable and confident if we were asked any of those kinds of questions that cut to the chase, that go right to the heart of the matter and seek to find out what is the real nub of a particular issue? People like to know what is at the very heart of any set of beliefs or ideas. Or, or they like to know what the, the key purpose of any organization might be. Or what is central to any particular matter. Or more personally speaking, what's really fundamental to our core beliefs, principles and values. Well, Jesus was put on the spot by this kind of question posed by a once quite friendly scribe who said to him, which commandment is the first of all? And Jesus began his reply by quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your might. Jews call those words the Shema. The Shema is this great commandment of the Jewish faith that Jews still recite as a prayer to begin and end each day. It's fastened as a parchment in a little decorative box called a mezuzah, and placed at the entrance to houses. It can also be placed in what's called the tefillin, which are black leather boxes containing the text of the Shema, and these are bound to the head and the upper arm as a reminder that the loving God requires both mind and body in prayerful devotion. So both Jesus and the scribe knew that the Shema lay at the very heart of the Jewish faith. 
The Shema has always been held in very high esteem by Jews. Victor E. Frankel, in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, relates the experience of watching those going to the gas chambers of Auschwitz with heads held high. And he remarks on the significance that as they went, they recited the words of the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. The core beliefs of these Jews shaped not only their faith, but turned them into the people they had become when they faced the end of their lives in such horrific circumstances. So when the scribe asks Jesus which commandment is first of all, not surprisingly, Jesus recites the Shema. But Jesus puts another commandment alongside the Shema too. Love your neighbor as yourself. Alongside the love of God is the command to love your neighbor. And Jesus links the two inextricably together. For Christians, the command to love God with all our heart, soul, and might, and the command to love one's neighbor as oneself, do really seem to fit together, don't they? Like a hand in a glove. But this wasn't always so. For those Jews who first heard Jesus' answer to the scribe's question, this was a new combination. The Shema from Deuteronomy 6 and the statement to commit to loving one's neighbor found in Leviticus chapter 19 did not normally in Jewish devotion sit side by side. So why did Jesus choose to put these two together and to declare them as the two greatest commandments of all? Well, by setting love of neighbor, which the religious leaders he was addressing were not doing, alongside the love of God, which the religious leaders were obsessed about, Jesus is making a strong point. He's telling them that there can be no love of God if there isn't also love of neighbor. In this simple juxtaposition, Jesus raises the crucial issue of which priorities should be emphasized by those in religious authority. In essence, Jesus raises a question of interpretation. Is faith about ritual or is it about people? Is it about sacrifice or is it about compassion? The scribes and the Pharisees had so emphasized ritual and sacrifice in the name of loyalty to God that they had overlooked compassion for human beings. Jesus challenges them to realize that without the love of neighbor, their love of God is meaningless. The scribe takes a step back from his own religious ritual observance and recognizes that the love of others is far more important than rituals, especially those rituals which have become institutional forms of oppression. But what does this first century Jewish dialogue between Jesus and the scribe have to teach us? 
After all, we wouldn't see ourselves as people of ritual, would we? No, we tend to point the finger at some other Christians with that kind of accusation, let alone people who offer sacrifices. That's surely an Old Testament thing long discarded. But you know, we do have our own particular ways and practices of going about our Christianity. Could it be that sometimes we allow these to get in the way of what lies at the heart of our faith? What's at the core of our belief? The love of God and the love of neighbor. Jesus is setting out what he believes to be the two most important commandments that his followers should keep. Jesus is getting down to the essence of things, to the heart of his people's faith. And we need to attend to that too in order to ensure that our practices don't distract us from what is first and of utmost priority in our Christian living. As we reflect on these two greatest commandments given us by Jesus, we can come to see how they should shape and determine our core beliefs as individual Christians and as church, and therefore also shape and determine the kind of disciples that Jesus calls us to be. I think all of us who are Methodists carry around in our heads some kind of understanding or expectation of what life in a Methodist church should look like. You know, we have or we assume a kind of a familiar pattern, a style, a flavor, an ethos to our life and worship. It's what we call our church culture. It's about how we go about doing things. And have you noticed, whenever that culture is threatened, we often see a strong reaction. The power of this culture was brought home to me on one occasion some years ago now when I received two angry phone calls from members of one particular church. The reason for these two angry phone calls was that they couldn't have their annual group anniversary service on a particular Sunday of the year. They'd been offered either the Sunday before or the Sunday after to hold this anniversary service, but no, it had to be on that particular Sunday. Do you know why? Because it was always on that particular Sunday. The Sundays either side for some unknown reason, just wouldn't do. Why? I really don't know. Well, the service came and went. The sky didn't fall in. No thunderbolts from heaven rained down upon that church or congregation. But trivial or frivolous, though all of that may seem, it actually belies a very important point. And that is that people in that church had allowed their church culture to seriously get in the way of their understanding of what they were there for, of what the purpose of the church was, of what the purpose of their worship was, of what the purpose of their very existence was as people of God in that place.
their culture, had come to overtake their core beliefs, to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, and mind, and to love their neighbor as themselves. But it's not only about worship or the familiar cycle of the church year where culture can take precedence and overshadow what we're meant to be about. There are other characteristics of our life together that may often get in the way of what God requires of us. We sometimes have a reluctance or an inadequacy when we are challenged to share our faith, to speak about it, to engage with evangelism, or to rely less on ourselves and more on the Holy Spirit. It's not that our culture is necessarily bad or wrong. It's just that, well, sometimes it can seem more important or attractive than the reason for the culture, which is simply to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Changing culture is always painful and threatening, even if it means moving a service from one Sunday to another. But you know, sometimes the changing of our church culture is not only necessary, but sometimes driven by the Spirit of God. And I think God does that for a purpose. I think sometimes he wants to draw us back to what are our core beliefs, to what is the nub of the issue, to what is the central focus of our life together as Christians, to remind us what we are about and the goal of our calling as disciples of Jesus. When the scribe agreed with Jesus that loving God and neighbor were far more important than the ritual of offering sacrifices, Jesus commended him by saying, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Interestingly, words which God gave to John Wesley a few hours before he experienced his spiritual awakening on the 24th of May, 1738. In those words which Jesus spoke to the scribe, he was pointing to that purpose which the keeping of those two great commandments served, the purpose of the kingdom of God. To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves is, in other words, to live out and to bring in the life of God's kingdom. That is what we are about as church. We're not here to serve ourselves. We're not here to serve our church culture. We're here to serve the kingdom of God. Our core values and purpose as the Methodist church are summed up in a statement known as our calling. It's printed on every annual membership ticket. If you haven't read it on your own, perhaps you should go home and get it out and have a read of it. Those core values are worship, learning, service, and evangelism. And a fuller description of what we as church should be about can be found in a document called The Priorities of the Methodist Church. Together, 
they seek to remind us that under God we are called to serve the kingdom. And every aspect of our life together needs to be subject to that litmus test of how we love God and how we love our neighbor. So we need to examine constantly what we're doing and how our life together is serving the kingdom, whether it is or not. Does our life together bring us nearer or take us farther away from the kingdom? Is our life together enabling the kingdom to be revealed and expressed in and through us so that through us, others may share in the life of God's kingdom? Or does it drive people away? It's when, like the scribe, we are prepared to take on board the critical and radical challenge of Jesus' answer that our church culture starts to seem less important and to give way to a kingdom culture. And when that change and transition begins to happen, then Jesus might look at us and say, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Those two great commandments may not be encased in decorative boxes outside the entrance to our homes, let alone worn on our foreheads and upper arms. But their prominence still needs to be central to our lives, to our church, and to our discipleship of Jesus. For it is when these two commandments become the unspoken directive of who and what we are and everything that we are about, that then Jesus may turn to you and to me and to the church, just as he did to the scribe, and say, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Amen.